I'll open us in prayer in just a minute. Uh, but what we're doing this morning is we are picking up where we left off last week. Technically, we're in a study of the book of Hebrews, but the, the concept of covenant is so central to the book of Hebrews that even though we're, we're kind of jumping back into the middle of Hebrews, we're, uh, I'm pausing for a moment to refresh your memory about uh, Hebrews, the, the, uh, about covenant uh, and, and covenant theology. Uh, there's, there's not one covenant in covenant theology. There are many covenants. Uh, how those covenants relate to one another and to us is what we're, we're wrestling with. And so just to refresh your memory, there are, we, would, we would say there are three great covenants. And I've told you about two of them. The other one is uh, we, we haven't talked about yet, so we'll start with that one this morning. The two that we have talked about of the three great covenants, uh, I'm calling them great covenants. I don't know if you'll find that in a book or not, but they're, they're the three uh, I also refer to them as the theological covenants, right? As opposed to the unfolding of covenants in Scripture, in time, in, you know, in history. But the first one is the covenant of works. The covenant of works made with Adam in the garden, held out the promise of eternal life upon obedience, death upon disobedience. And Adam broke that covenant. Uh, he, he did not obey, and he brought death upon himself. The bad news for us is he was doing what he did as our representative. Sometimes you'll hear the language federal head used. Federal is actually an old Latin word for covenant, our covenant head. Uh, and so uh, Adam was our federal head and he failed. And so two major problems there. He, he did not achieve the perfect obedience that was required. Therefore, we haven't either. And he brought the curse of the covenant upon himself and everyone he represented, which is all of his offspring. So that's the covenant of works. The covenant of works is still in effect. Still in effect in as much as it condemns everyone. Everyone is at some point from conception until they accept Christ, they are under the covenant of works. Another way to say that is on the day of judgment, the foundation of the justice of the judgment against them is their identity as those who are under the curse of the covenant of works. Their personal sin only confirms the justice of that judgment and itself heaps further judgment upon them. So the covenant of works in failing, in Adam failing in the covenant of works, it, the covenant of works didn't go away. It's still in effect. Everyone today who is not in Christ is a member of the covenant of works and under its curse. God did not leave us under that covenant, but determined to deliver a people for himself from that judgment according to a new covenant, the covenant of grace. You can think of the covenant of grace in some ways as God saying, we're going to do it again, only this time I'm going to be your federal head. I'm going to be your representative. And that's Jesus Christ. Christ in his earthly ministry accomplishes the perfect righteousness that was required of Adam and also takes upon himself the curse of the covenant of works for everyone who belongs to him and does away with that curse so that all of the requirements of the covenant of works are met for us in Christ Jesus as the federal head of the covenant of grace. Okay? So the covenant of grace answers fulfills 
the covenant of works. And Jesus Christ is how it does that. He's the second Adam or the last Adam. Uh, all of that unfolds in history because the triune God covenanted with himself to do it. And we see that covenant, we, we call that covenant, so this is the third of the big three theological covenants. We call that covenant the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. And we see that covenant in Ephesians chapter 1. Turn with me, if you would. It's not the only place we see it. Uh, the covenant of redemption is the context of all of Christ's teaching when he says, the Father told me this and the Father told me that, and I've only come to do the will of the Father, and I've only come to say the things the Father told me to say. That's the covenant of redemption working itself out in history. So when you go to Ephesians 1, it's this covenant of redemption that Paul has in mind as he writes, beginning in verse 3. We're going to move quickly through this because I, I don't intend this to be uh, all of the time we have left. So I'll try to give you verse numbers so that you can keep up as we move around. But what Paul does in these opening verses is he describes redemption, our redemption, in Trinitarian terms. Speaking of what the Father has done, and what the Son has done, and what the Spirit does. And he actually gives us a little clue that he's transitioning from one to the next. So if you look at verse 3, he opens, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has... And he describes the action of God in redemption. Blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That before the foundation of the world is the redemptive, it's the covenant of redemption. God himself being atemporal, outside of time, in his being, covenanted amongst the three persons. So that from our perspective, even temporal language has to be used. We can barely conceive of something that is not bound by time. And we ourselves will be bound by time for eternity. Even though there is no end for us in Christ, there is moment followed by moment followed by moment. We will never be free to just exist in... in, in I mean, even, even our scientists can't separate time from space, right? Uh, we are bound by the created order. This is what we are inherently. It's a part of our created humanity, not merely our fallen humanity. We're bound by time. So God, when he speaks to us, has to use that time-bound language. And so how does he speak of this eternal covenant, this covenant of redemption that stands outside of time because it only exists in God? He says, before the foundation of the world, the Father chose us. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of, of his will. Look at this, verse 6. First, first cue that, we're, that Paul's moving on in redemption to the next person of the Trinity. He says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now why do I say that that's a cue? Well, if you'll look down uh, to... Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And then verse 14, to the praise of his glory. 
You see, he says it three times. And when we look at what happens between those instances, we find a focus on the Father in the first, the Son in the second, and the Spirit in the third. So if someone was to say to you, uh, oh, your pastor told you about the covenant of redemption, where in the Bible do you see any talk about the triune God covenanting amongst himself, the persons? Uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is where you would go. Right, So uh, to the praise of his uh, glorious grace in verse 6, with which he's blessed us in the beloved transition to Christ. Uh, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So he continues to talk about Christ. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 12. In verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So there's a, a, a thrice praise here. Three times, Paul says, to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace. Each time, praising God because of what the Father has done in redemption, the, Spirit, or the Son has done in redemption, and the Spirit has done in redemption. So we've got this covenant of redemption where God uh, covenants uh, in, in the three persons of the Trinity uh, to accomplish all that unfolds in redemptive history. And that covenant of redemption unfolds in history according to the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. So I'm going to stop right there. Is everybody tracking? You have this atemporal, triune covenant of redemption. This is what I'm going to do in creation. This is why I'm creating, to do this. And then he does it. He creates, and he issues the covenant of works, and there's the fall, and the covenant of grace, and that is unfolding through history until we come to the end of redemptive history and the beginning of eternity, right? So covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace. Any questions about those three covenants, how they relate to one another, what each one is? Okay. The covenant of grace, then, unfolds in history in a series of covenants. And these covenants don't negate the previous expression of the covenant of grace. Each of these covenants in history is an expression of the covenant of grace and continues in some sense, right? Uh, the covenant made with Abraham, the covenant made with David, and the covenant made uh, with with all of those who are in Christ, which is referred to the new referred to as the new covenant, you can read about that among other places in Jeremiah 31. That's kind of the the standard proof text for the new covenant. And we've talked about those three covenants, so I'm not going to to go through carefully all three of those again today. Any question about those three covenants: the, the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the new covenant? Okay, then there are two significant covenants left in Scripture that we haven't really discussed yet. Uh, the first is the Noahic covenant. So if you'll turn in your Bibles all the way back to Genesis, the narrative of Noah and the ark begins in Genesis chapter 6. 
But it's not until we're a bit into that narrative that we get the, the Noahic covenant. The question is, how does this covenant fit in with the system of covenants? Right? And generally, we, we understand... Uh, I mean, it's possible. We, we want to reserve this possibility that it has nothing to do with those covenants, right? Uh, that, that God does something here uh, in a particular time, in a particular place, and in doing it, it reveals something about him and about what he's doing. It has value. It's great. But it's, it's not a part of uh, one of those three covenants. That, that is a possibility. Uh, it's possible that it's actually, uh, to use a a popular word in theology that's ordinarily applied to the Mosaic Covenant, it could just be a republication of the covenant of works. Uh, Or it may be a part of the covenant of grace. I, I personally am convinced that it belongs to the covenant of works. And I'm going to carefully show you why I believe that. Now, it happens... Uh, in time, as a, as a part of the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is established immediately in the fall, that, that first declaration of the gospel, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and you shall bruise his head and he shall bruise your heel. Right there, immediately God begins to make that promise of the covenant of grace. And that covenant of grace is not broken. It's not paused. It continues unbroken until Christ comes again. Okay? In the historical context of that covenant of grace, the Noahic covenant, in, in my view, uh, and this is, my view is not contrary to our standards or anything like that, the Noahic covenant is a republication of the covenant of works. Before we look at the text, why would God do that? I believe that God does it because having threatened death on a, on a, a universal scale as a result of the covenant of works... Shy eight people. That's exactly what happened in the flood. All of humanity and every created thing was killed. And the entire earth was washed of everything. It would be reasonable to ask the question, has the covenant of works been finally fulfilled? Did God exercise the final judgment of the covenant of works and it's over? And I believe that with Noah, God says no. The covenant of works is still in effect for those who will not believe. And to the degree that the covenant of works is good, right? We, we rightly use a lot of negative language about the covenant of works. Because it failed. Adam failed, right? Uh, and the covenant of works' enduring effect is to send all of us, absent Christ, to hell. It condemns us. So rightly, we don't have a really positive view of the covenant of works, right? But the covenant of works, had Adam kept it, held out the promise of life. And in the context of that covenant of works, God gave us work to do. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And we've talked about this before, right? Be fruitful and multiply. The Garden of Eden was not the entire earth. It was a a small part of the earth. And Adam and Eve were given the task of of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with people, but not just people. People who worship God and serve 
him. That's the subdue. It's not that the garden didn't have any weeds. Everything else in the world did. And the, the goal is to push that garden out, the boundaries of the garden, pulling the weeds and, and creating more and bigger space where there aren't any weeds. That's only helpful as a metaphor. God is not concerned about weeds, right? Fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it to whom? To what? Subdue it to yourselves, Adam and Eve, as my regents in the world. Therefore me. Subdue it to me, to my worship, to my service. Right? So there are these, there's a positive mission given to Adam and Eve. And one of the things we see in the covenant of grace as it unfolds is we see God restoring that mission. We are filling the earth and subduing it as we in covenant families have children. We are filling the earth and subduing it as we who know Christ tell others about him. They hear the gospel, believe, and are added to the number of those who are being saved. We're, we're about this mission still because God is restoring this mission to his people. There are positive ways to think about and talk about the covenant of works in that respect. Look at, uh, we're in Genesis chapter 9. This is after the flood has subsided and God makes a covenant with Noah. Uh, I'm actually going to begin in chapter 8 verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Is that a promise to the elect? And the elect alone? It's, it's universal. It's with respect to the earth. Until Christ comes again and final judgment falls on the earth, he, God has promised not to do this again to the earth and everybody in it. That's a universal promise. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I've given you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Pause. First of all, did you hear the covenant of works? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then he starts talking about the fear of the animals. And look at what he says. You shall not eat. Well, you shall not eat was, was the instruction that was given in the covenant of works. But of that tree, that one, you shall not eat. God is republishing the covenant of works. The covenant of works is still in effect. You, Noah, are still to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the promise that God has given in this covenant is a promise to everybody in the world. Look at verse 8, chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, 
It is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Who's that covenant with? The elect? No. It's with everybody. It's universal. We only have one other expression, covenantal expression in history that's universal. That's the covenant of works. And not only is it universal just like the covenant of works, but the very instruction in that covenant is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and by the way, do not eat of this particular thing. Right? So, uh, the Noahic covenant. Now, is there grace on display in the narrative of the flood? Are you kidding me? Oh my word, there's grace on display. Types of Christ abound in the flood narrative. And God's renewal of these things, this promise not to destroy again, is just grace on spectacular display. I don't want you to hear me say that there's no grace and there's no Christ. There's no Messiah and no promise in the Noahic narrative. But the covenant God makes with Noah is not the same thing as the flood that Noah has come through. The narrative of the flood is filled with God revealing his grace and mercy. Filled with it. But when he comes to make a covenant with Noah, what he says is, I'm going to tell you again, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, do not eat of that one thing. Right? For this reason, I don't believe that the Noahic covenant is a part of the covenant of grace. One of the features of the covenant of grace is that it is only made with the elect. Only the elect belong to the covenant of grace. Now, if, if you're new to covenant theology, to reformed theology, you've, maybe you've heard something about Calvinism and election and predestination and all of that. I don't want you to get hung up on that when I say only the elect. Elect is a biblical word. All over the Bible it talks about the elect of God. The only question for us to wrestle with is what does that mean? But we can't deny that out of humanity there is an elect people. The Bible says it explicitly over and over again. Right? So... That's all I'm saying. Whoever that people is, we can talk about at another time. But whoever that people is, they are the only ones who are parties to the covenant of grace. It's not universal. And yet here with Noah, we see that it's universal. And it's also uh, a, it's repetitive of the covenant of works. So let me pause there. Any questions? Liz.
It's not so much that I want to come back to it for, you know, because it's a long answer. Um, I want to come back to it because I don't know how to answer it. I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. I'd have to think more carefully before answering. I don't want to answer flat-footed. The question is, are there ripple effects uh, in our understanding of the rest of Scripture and what God's doing uh, that come as a result of saying this is not a part of the covenant of grace? Um, and, and off the top of my head, I can't think of any, but... Uh, but I, I, that probably deserves more time before I give a, a definitive answer. Uh, any other questions? Yes? Is there any reason why God doesn't um, reiterate the covenant of grace here to Noah and his offspring, or is that kind of implicit in the fact that he saved Noah and his family? Yeah, is there... Um, I, I heard and understood your question, but I can't remember how you opened. I, I have to repeat it for the people who are online. Can you say it again? Uh, is, is there a reason why God doesn't reiterate the covenant of grace as well? Yeah, is there a reason why God doesn't reiterate the covenant of grace as well? Um, setting aside for a moment that without an explicit statement from God about why he doesn't, uh, all I can do is try to reason from the text. Um, but I, I think part of it is what you've suggested that there is such an implicit continuing outworking. Uh, the, the fact that, that God doesn't destroy everybody, that he preserves these eight, is the, the ongoing outworking of the covenant of grace, right? I mean, it's not just he was nice to them, and that's consistent with the covenant of grace. This is the line through which the Messiah is coming, right? And so the preservation, not just of somebody, but of these people, is itself... Uh, a, um, yeah, I mean, it's part of what we would refer to as the Historia Salutis. You know, uh, we talk about salvation in terms of the parts of our salvation, and we call that the Ordo Salutis, the, the order of salvation, right? That I, I, I am brought from death to life by the, the effectual preaching of the word, uh, and that that having taken place, I, I'm regenerated, right? That is regeneration, being brought from death to life. Uh, and that as one who is regenerate, I then express faith and repentance, am justified, etc., through the order of salvation. But we can also talk about salvation in terms of the acts of God throughout history to bring that salvation about, right? And when we talk about those acts of salvation, we call that historia salutis, the history of salvation. And certainly, the, the act of preserving Noah and his family... Uh, is, is an outworking of the covenant of grace, no question. Uh, I think, too, the fact that it, it may be a universal covenant that he makes, but Noah is the one to whom he makes it, right? And so in that respect, I think Noah is playing a redemptive role. It, it's just that what's promised and who it's promised to in the Noahic covenant is bound entirely by the same things that, are, are, that belong to the covenant of works. So... Um, and, and I think there's part of that is because what God reiterates isn't just the curse. It's not that, that he says to Noah, and by the way, that covenant that cursed you and condemned you, I still haven't brought the final destruction yet. That wasn't it. Don't, don't miss that. That wasn't it. Uh, that was just a foreshadowing of what the actual destruction is going to look like in the end. He doesn't just reiterate the judgment and the curse. He reiterates the instruction. 
Because this is what God's doing in the covenant of grace. Uh, and this is something else that deserves so much more time. But, and you see it in Paul's letters, in, in the, the, the letter to the, the Hebrews, you see this. Our salvation is so much more than not going to hell. I mean, not going to hell? That's just like one of the foundational necessities, right? That's, that's hardly even a beginning point. Not going to hell is, I mean, that's a, that is an absolute given. We haven't even gotten anything yet. We've only not gotten what we deserved. We talk about all of the blessings and the promises and the gift of God and everything that is ours in Christ Jesus. We're not even talking about being saved from hell. That's what's not given to us, is hell. What we gain in Christ is that, that life-giving and sustaining relationship with Jesus Christ and the triune God. And everything that flows to us out of that relationship. I mean, from an earthly perspective, it maybe is a helpful illustration. In light of reality, it pales. But if you've got a friend who has untold wealth and untold privilege and untold access, and you're his friend, and he's happy to share it with you? You've got relationship with him that bears, uh, it, that, that gives, provides benefits, right? It's the relationship that matters. In fact, we would say that if you're only in relationship with that person to get the benefits, that that's not a healthy relationship. And yet when you're in a healthy relationship with that person and those benefits flow to you, of course it's a source of great joy, right? I mean, who, who doesn't want to ride first class for free to exotic places? Because your friend said, hey, why don't you come with me? Can, right? Uh, yeah. Can verse 26 just be like, it, you know, uh, for us in the text, uh, understanding that um, Noah knew, like he, he knows it's the blessed be the Lord God of Shem. And he's talking about Shem and Jacob. It's like he, he knows that there's that, that covenant of grace is continuing. Oh, absolutely. So yeah. That picture that he knows, even though it's not explicitly said, and what God is promising him. That's right. There's, there's a bigger context in the early chapters of Genesis where without explicitly saying, so then Adam told Seth. And so Seth knew. And then Seth told Enoch. And Enoch knew. Right? We, we don't get that. And yet, what we do see from those who are in this particular line from Seth all the way down to Abraham and beyond, what we do see is the, the clear implication that they know. Uh, this is one of the things that I've, I've often made reference to in Genesis 4, uh, Cain and Abel. Well, we're not told that Adam told Cain and Abel what they were supposed to do to worship God rightly. No narrative that suggests that. And yet, when Cain doesn't do what he's supposed to, what is God's response? Cain, why are you upset? If you do well, will you not be accepted? God's speech absolutely not only assumes that Cain knows what's right, but he knows what's wrong and why it's wrong and insisted on doing it. If you do well, will you not be accepted? So no conversation that we have between Adam and Cain, and yet clearly Adam has taught Cain what is required. 
You get all the way down to Noah, where seven gener- Noah's father, Lamech, were seven generations removed. And it says that when Noah was born, Lamech said, finally, this one is the one who will remove the curse. Well, we don't have a single conversation between any of those fathers and sons about the covenant promises. And yet, seven generations in, a father is looking for the Messiah in his son, expecting that Messiah. That pattern continues all the way through. Yes, Craig. No, yeah. Yeah, that republication language is not suggesting God's starting over. Uh, it's, it's him telling Noah, his sons, and all of the earth that that covenant that was broken, all that's still in place. It's all still in effect. What is required of you is still in effect. And it's still in effect today. We are still required to be perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect. It hasn't changed. We are still required to meet the demands of the covenant of works. Which I said in the sermon, ought to cause you to despair if you don't know that precisely what Christ has done is met all of that righteous requirement for you. This is why Paul anticipates in Romans chapter 6 that his readers are going to go, well, then we can just sin all we want. It's all covered. It's all paid for. I mean, just order everything off the menu. Gorge yourself on sin if you like. He's paid for it. And Paul's answer to them is not, no, you've misunderstood. Grace is not that vast. I mean, that's what he ought to say, right? If, if we've misunderstood, and that's not what God's doing, then the answer ought to be, the correction ought to be, grace is not that big. It's not that vast. That's not what Paul says. Remember, he says, that's not who you are. Because Christ has done that, yes, it's all covered. It is finished. But if you understand who he is and who you are in him and what he's done for you, you will want to live a righteous and holy life because that's his life. And it's the life that's promised to us when Christ comes again. And it's the life we're called to now as we wait for that return. It's a life that we are empowered to live by the Holy Spirit. Right. So, yes, thank you for that clarification, Craig. Uh, When I say republication, I don't mean he's starting over again. But what he's saying is you might have thought that that massive act of destruction was me finally bringing the hammer down on the covenant of works and it's over. In fact, it's not. That was just me giving you a sense of what it might look like when that day finally comes. 
It was a limited demonstration of what that day will look like. But the curse is still there. And your requirement to meet it, that covenant of works, is still there. And you're either going to have to meet it yourself or somebody's going to have to meet it for you. But that somebody's going to have to be qualified. Right? Will? What do we make of the fact that the Noahic covenant expressly includes animals? Yeah, that's a good question. There's an apparent difference between that and the covenant with Adam, right? Uh, yes. I, I group that, uh, the addition of animals. I group that... Uh, yes, recipients, I don't want to make a hard distinction there, but it's more in what he's promising not to do, right? Um, it's got to do with the total destruction. And that total destruction is, is so universal that it's not only every man, it's not only even every animal. It's the world itself that he promises not to do this to again. All of creation belongs to the Noahic Covenant. And in that sense, yeah, I mean, there's differences. Um, but I think the narrative expectation is that you will immediately recognize the covenant of works when you read this covenant. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And by the way, there's a particular something you're not allowed to eat, right? Um, so, yeah, there are some distinctions there. Liz. <clears throat> Oh, yeah, Romans. We have a clear picture that did include it all, even if it wasn't spelled out the same way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's, there's, death is not, not, what's that? And Christ wearing the thorns. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we think of it as the curse on Adam in particular, but notice the earth is, it is cursed in Adam. Uh, yeah, the, the crown of thorns that Christ wears is intended to take us back to Genesis 3, where he says, by the sweat of your brow and in thorns, right, you'll reap from the earth. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, another indication that Christ is that last Adam. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's certainly correct. So, the, uh, yeah, the, the inclusion of animals there is consistent with the fact that the curse didn't just fall on us, it fell on everything in creation. So, Okay, um, I really was hoping to finish today, and then we could, uh, we could pick up with Hebrews next week. But the pastor went long this morning, and, uh, and so we still need to come back to Moses. But I need to say this, I think I, I probably spoke incautiously a couple of weeks ago, when I made a fairly objective statement that the Mosaic Covenant's not a part of the covenant of grace, and I'm going to walk that back next week. Um, I think there's a, a more careful way for me to talk about the Mosaic Covenant, uh, and so we'll, we'll look at that. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you so much again for the way you've been at work in history, uh, the way you have preserved your revelation for us, uh, that you've not only delivered this word to us, but our... Uh, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and therefore, uh, Father, it is, it's you who teaches us. And so we rejoice in that and give thanks. And we pray that you would, where we are in error, correct us. Uh, where we have the truth, Father, we pray that we would cling to it. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.